Welcome to episode 22 of History of the Marine Corps. The Marines recapture Fort Nassau. Last week, we discussed Marines on board the Boston. The ship was ordered to escort John Adams to France to replace Silas Dean as one of the American commissioners. During their voyage, they encountered a British vessel, and John Adams would fight alongside Marines in this engagement. This week, the Marines head back to the Bahamas for more supplies. Marines will conduct another amphibious landing on the island and capture the two forts, but this time, the locals wouldn't be so passive. Captain Trevitt and 25 of his Marines would have a stressful time during this fight. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. During our last episode, Captain Trevitt and his Marines snuck into Fort Nassau. The British sentries had no idea Marines were inside, and Trevitt reminded his men that silence was paramount. A gunshot would notify the guards of their presence, so the Marines prepared for hand-to-hand -hand combat. With Captain Trevitt taking point, his Marines followed behind him as they passed the living quarters. They turned the corner and ran right into a British soldier. Trevitt and his marines overpowered the guard and dragged him into the closest room. The guard was panicking at the sight of Trevitt and his marines, and he asked, For God's sake, what have I done? Trevitt calmed the man down and quietly asked him if other soldiers were nearby. Surprisingly, there was only one other guard in the entire fort, and his post was on the opposite end. The lack of men was a welcome surprise for Trevitt. He asked the soldier why only two men would be left to guard an entire fort, especially since the fort was vital to the protection of the island. The guard informed Trevitt that an army of 500 British soldiers was nearby and will come to their aid in minutes at the sound of a cannon firing. 26 Marines against 500 soldiers would be one hell of a challenge, but confronting British soldiers wasn't the goal. They were there for supplies and it wasn't worth it to risk the lives of his marines if they could accomplish the mission without confronting British soldiers outside of the fort. Trevitt briefed his marines on the looming threat and assigned them roles to quickly empty the fort of supplies while watching out for an enemy soldier who might sneak up on them. Most of the marines were responsible for gathering the gunpowder stored in the fort. Some marines manned the fort's cannons, pointing them towards town roads that led to the fort and at the boats docked in the harbor. Trevitt also posted guards throughout the fort to warn the Marines if someone was approaching. The Marines kept up the sentry calls, and every 30 minutes shouted, All is well. Pretending to be British guards worked, and British soldiers in the harbor acknowledged the Marine status report. As the sun was rising, Trevitt raised the American flag over the fort, signaling that it was no longer under British control. Using stealth paid off for the Marines, but it had a downside. The Marines had to travel light, and they didn't bring food or water with them when they landed. However, Trevitt knew of a resident who lived close to the fort, James Gould. Gould used to live in Rhode Island, and he supported America's fight for independence. A Marine was sent to Gould's home with a letter from Trevitt requesting food and water for the men who just captured the fort. It didn't take much to convince him, and Gould rushed to the fort to meet the captain of Marines. Gould approached the scaling ladder 
and Trevitt climbed down to meet him. They had a brief discussion about their mission. Trevitt was open with Gould and provided honest answers for most of his questions. He explained he was part of Captain Biddle's fleet and they planned to take supplies and weapons belonging to the British, but the private property of the residence was to be left untouched. Gould asked how many men were with him in the fort, but this time he wasn't as honest. He stated that there were 200 enlisted men and 30 officers inside the fort. Trevitt mentioned that the 200 enlisted men had their rations issued, but his 30 officers needed breakfast. Gould rushed into town and gathered enough bread, butter, and coffee for 30 men. Not too long after Gould's departure, food and drinks would arrive at the fort. According to Trevitt, it was an excellent breakfast, and every man had double his usual servings. After breakfast, Lieutenant Moulton was sent with two other Marines to Fort Montagu. It was the same situation there, and only two guards protected the entire fort. With orders in hand, Lieutenant Moulton and two Marines humped the four miles to Fort Montagu. They made their way in and notified the guards that 230 Marines took Fort Nassau and will march on Fort Montagu if they don't surrender. The guards didn't put up a fight and quickly surrendered to Moulton. With both forts captured, Trevitt turned his attention to the Mary, a 16-gun British ship. One sailor from the Providence and four freed American prisoners boarded a boat and sailed out to the Mary. The captain of the ship wasn't on board. It turned out he was sick and headed to shore to recover. Left in his stead was his lieutenant, and he initially refused to let the American party on deck. The Mary was close to the fort, and Trevitt was able to see what was going on and hear the conversation. He decided to take matters into his own hands and shouted some, quote, hard language and some hard names. I wish I had more details on what he actually said. I'm sure we wouldn't be disappointed. Whatever it was worked, and the lieutenant permitted the Americans to come on board and take the ship without a single shot being fired. The American sailors stayed with the Mary while the four American prisoners escorted the remaining crew back to the fort. The ship contained sugar, rum, and coffee, which would be a welcome sight for the crew. The Marines and the four prisoners traveled to the other four ships in the harbor. They captured all four, two of which included the Washington and the Trial. With all four ships captured, the Providence headed safely into the harbor and anchored near Hog Island. The crew spotted another ship off the horizon. It turned out to be the Gayton, a British privateer ship, and the same one that captured the American prisoners and the four ships in port. The Americans knew that the Gayton could not stand up against the Providence, so Captain Rathbun and Captain Trevitt decided to use the element of surprise instead of a direct attack. Rathbun ordered the American flags lowered on the ship and at the fort. There, they patiently waited for the gate into near. However, the residents saw through this trick. Men, women, and children ran to the hills and started waving their hats, coats, and aprons at the gate in. The captain of the gate in didn't get the hint, and he thought the locals were welcoming them back to the island. He continued forward towards the Providence, but a few motivated locals boarded some small boats and sailed out to the gate in to notify them of the impending threat. The Gaten started to change course, and Trevitt ordered the American flag raised and gave the command to fire three 18-pounders at the fleeing ship. One of the cannonballs punctured the hole of the Gaten, but it did little to stop the ship from fleeing. 
the Gaten was able to escape the Providence and circled the island to Fort Montagu. The ship anchored, and the captain of the Gaten and his crew headed towards the fort. Lieutenant Moulton and his two Marines couldn't protect Fort Montagu against the advancing enemy. Trevitt ordered him to spike the cannons, destroy any breaching equipment, discard the powder into the ocean, and head back to Fort Nassau. By nightfall, Moulton and his two Marines were able to complete their task successfully and rejoin Trevitt. Fort Montagu had very little left of value, Fort Nassau was under the control of the Marines, and the Americans had four new ships. It was a successful day, and the Marines took this opportunity to unwind a little. They feasted on turtle meat, served on eloquent china dishes by the servants of the island's royalty. The locals were distressed about the situation and started to panic. The Marines were able to take over the island with a relatively small force, quickly, so they feared the worst and they started to hide their personal property. That night, the island's council convened and they discussed what was going on and what the next step should be. The decision was similar to the one made during the first raid by the Americans in March 1776. Any attempts to retake the forts would be useless and might end up with the Marines retaliating against the town. The locals also didn't have sufficient weapons, ammunition, and powder to put up a fight. They took Trevitt at his word that no one would be hurt and their property would be left alone if they didn't interfere with their mission. As a result, the Marines spent the rest of the night in relative peace. Trevitt posted guards as a precaution, but any locals or British soldiers didn't confront the Marines. However, the morning would bring a different story. Locals started to become irritated and impatient with the presence of the Marines. The captains of the Gaten didn't help with the situation, and he was encouraging them to retaliate. Locals started to gather at the governor's house, located on the hills behind the fort. During episode 11, The Marines Go to the Bahamas Part 2, we briefly discussed the layout of the fort. Fort Nassau was in an undesirable location. It was right on the water and surrounded by hills. Anyone attacking the fort would have the high ground. According to Trevitt, he could see the guns of the gathering crowd glistening in the sunlight, and this started to make him worry. Trevitt wanted to avoid a fight with the locals. As noon approached, the crowd neared the fort. They stopped about 25 yards away. Someone from the crowd recognized Trevitt from the first raid, where he captured Governor Brown. The locals pointed him out, but Trevitt didn't seem to care too much about being identified. Soon, a member from the local council appeared by the fort. Trevitt lowered the scaling ladder and met with the councilman. The councilman inquired about the reason Marines have taken the fort, and Trevitt repeated his mission. He ensured the councilman that no one would be hurt if they left peacefully. He also requested the town deliver supplies to refit the four captured ships. Trevitt then turned around and climbed the ladder back into the fort. The Marines patiently waited inside for an hour, but no one responded to his request. Trevitt lowered the scaling ladder again, climbed down, and decided to visit the governor directly. As he was leaving, he ordered Lieutenant Moulton to fire a few 18 powders loaded with grape shot into the crowd if they should attack him. Trevitt drew a sword and started to walk through the crowd. Fortunately, no one attacked, and the situation didn't escalate. He headed towards the governor's house, but was stopped before he could reach the property. 
The locals agreed to his request and provided the needed supplies. By nightfall, all supplies were transferred to Fort Nassau, and the four ships would be outfitted and ready by the next night. With the tension between the Marines and the locals de-escalated, Trevitt and his men were able to have another undisturbed night before they headed out. The next morning, Captain Rathbun headed to shore to join Trevitt and the Marines. He stated that the Providence will sail out the following day, but would require three maritime pilots to help maneuver her as they leave the port. It was highly unlikely that the three local pilots would come out and help the Americans. Trevitt suggested that before they leave port, they auction off 23 barrels of rice. Auctioning off the rice would tempt the local pilots to come forward and be identified. The Marines rested for another night, and Captain Trevitt made his way to Gould's house for dinner. As they were feasting, Trevitt looked out the window and saw one of his Marines running towards his location. He met the Marine outside, where he learned that the crew from the Gaten was coming on shore. Trevitt quickly left his friend's house and headed back to the fort. When he arrived, he discovered that the locals had positioned cannons on the nearby hills and were aiming them at the fort. They planned to attack that night. While this was happening, Gould started to pack up some of his belongings, gather his family, and leave his house for a safer location. On his way out, he passed Fort Nassau, and Trevitt spotted him and his family. He came out with a smile and said to Gould, I hope you are not afraid. Gould looked at him and said, No, I'm not afraid, but I do not expect to see you anymore, for they have all the privateer's crew at the governor's house and are making every preparation to attack you tonight, for they have discovered your strength. Gould went on to jokingly say that if Trevitt had more than that old small boat used to come ashore, he would fight them himself. Trevitt smiled at his friend and said that if he should pass the following morning, he would still find the Marines in control of the fort. The two men said their goodbyes, and Gould left with his family toward safety. Trevitt headed back inside the fort and asked John Scranton, a young Marine from Rhode Island, to prepare to climb up the flagpole to secure the American flag. Trevitt wrote a letter to the governor, demanding him to break up the men on the hills. If he didn't do so in 15 minutes, Marines would start firing into the town with no mercy. He sent the letter off and also instructed Scranton to climb the pole and nail the American colors to it. Securing the flag in this manner signified the Marines had no intentions of surrendering and would fight down to the last man. Trevitt's message worked, and within 20 minutes, the men on the hills dispersed. It looked like the Marines were safe from the locals on Governor's Hill. But the captain of the Gaten, Captain Chambers, hadn't abandoned his plan to attack the fort. Chambers was able to recruit a few hundred locals to help fight the Marines, and he was going to attack the Americans by sea and by land. The plan was for the few hundred locals to advance on Fort Nassau from land, while the Gaten engaged the Providence by sea. They would advance after dark. Around 2300, the Gaten led the attack and started to head towards the Providence. However, the pilot of the ship didn't have much experience and ended up beaching the ship. Chambers decided moving forward with the plan without the gate in wouldn't work, so he scrapped it. The Marines spent the night preparing for departure the following morning. Marines transported weapons and ammunition to the Providence. Cannons were spiked to render them useless, and all breaching equipment destroyed. 
when the sun started to rise, the Marines were ready to leave the fort. Right after sunrise, Trevitt moved forward with his plan to entice the local pilots and displayed the 23 barrels of rice in front of the fort for auction. He took one of his drummers and started to march through the local market, notifying the residents about the 23 barrels of rice he is selling at a discounted rate. He explained that he would throw any unsold barrel of rice into the ocean. By 0800, a group of locals were at the fort. Trevitt distributed rice to the children, and he began to auction off the remaining supply. While this was going on, Marines were selecting the pilots to help move the Providence out of the harbor. The pilots were selected, moved to the harbor, and the remaining rice was given away. Two hours later, all of the ships were ready to set sail. Trevitt and a couple of his Marines stayed on shore to finish up some last-minute details. While they were waiting for the transport vessel to bring them to the Providence, one of the officers from the Gaten showed up and had an invitation to Captain Rathbun and his officers. The letter invited the Americans to a local tavern for a bowl of punch, and it promised the invitation wasn't a ruse. Trevitt had a rough few days, and he wasn't about to fall for this nonsense. He replied to Chambers to bring the Gaten out to sea, capture the Providence, and then he would have some punch. The British officer took Trevitt's message back to Chambers as the remaining Marines made their way to the Providence. That night, the Providence and her four newly acquired ships headed out to sea and prepared for their voyage north. The Marines were also rewarded for a job well done at Fort Nassau, and they were treated to a fancy dinner. They were given explicit orders by Trevitt to rest. Captain Trevitt took command of the Mary, and the ship sailed away from the Bahamas. The Mary separated from the Providence and made the trip back to New Bedford, Massachusetts. The trip back would be bitter cold, and one man would be frozen to death, while several others suffered from severe frostbite. When the Mary arrived in Massachusetts, the Eastern Navy Board categorized the ship as a merchant's vessel and only authorized half of the proceeds to Trevitt and his men. This caused an argument between Trevitt and the authoritative agents. Trevitt's complaints would go to court, but the decision would not change. After all the Marines have been through, Trevitt didn't think this was acceptable, so he traveled to Pennsylvania to speak with the Marine Committee. Unfortunately for Trevitt, his meeting with the Marine Committee was never approved, and he left Pennsylvania without speaking to anyone about the situation. When he arrived back in Massachusetts, he discovered that the Mary was burned by a British raiding party, and the ship was destroyed. To make matters worse, Trevitt learned that he would no longer be in charge of his Marines on board the Providence. According to the Vernon Papers, Trevitt wasn't preferred due to his recent disagreements with the Navy Board, and a replacement was found to take his place, but the name of his replacement is unknown. Trevitt was in Massachusetts in late July, and watched the Providence sail off to Nova Scotia with his Marines and his replacement on board. In the evening of August 7th, the Providence ran into an enemy convoy with 30 armed transport ships. Captain Rathbun picked out one of the transport ships and immediately started to attack. They fought for hours, and at around midnight, the Providence had to retreat to a nearby island for repairs and headed back to Boston the following morning. Meanwhile, the Randolph was returning to South Carolina from a recent trip. The British were focusing on destroying ports and trade routes along the East Coast, 
and constructed a blockade of four ships right off the coast of the Charleston Bar. Multiple merchant ships were in Charleston, and they were planning on headed towards Europe to deliver military supplies and clothing to the government. With the blockade in place, they weren't traveling anywhere. South Carolina did not have the appropriate defenses to counter the British fleet, so they requested several detachments from the Continental Army to serve on board ships as Marines. Unfortunately, General Howe would deny this request. They also brought into service a few vessels owned by local merchants and equipped them with cannons. To help with recruiting, the Privy Council offered a bounty of $10 and a monthly pay of $21 per month for every man who served on board the ship. On July 13th, as the American fleet was getting ready to head out to sea, the captains of the four additional ships met with the commissioners of the South Carolina Navy. They explained their vessels were nowhere near ready and suggested to wait until spring so they may adequately outfit their ship and properly train their men. That was over a month away and the British blockade needed to be taken care of immediately. During the morning of January 15th, the Marines and sailors on the Randolph anchored in the harbor. As they looked towards the direction of Charleston, they noticed flames from the houses. It turned out that a local bakery caught fire, and that fire started to spread throughout the town. A strong wind was present as well, and this helped spread the fire throughout the city. Everyone tried putting out the fire, but when the dust settled, 252 houses burnt to the ground, and a large part of the town was destroyed. The fire was problematic for the planned attack. It destroyed weapons, supplies, and powder and the family members of the men who were going to serve in the naval fleet were now homeless and desperately in need of help. It was winter, and all they had were a couple of blankets. However, a week after the fire, the four captains who wanted more time appeared in front of the board and announced that they were ready. On February 12th, the fleet started to move out. However, the British fleet wasn't in sight. The Americans headed south, and on March 7th, spotted an enemy ship near Barbados. It turned out to be the Yarmouth, a 64-gun ship of the line. The Randolph got into position and waited for the enemy ship to approach. The four other American ships followed the Randolph's lead, but three of the four were carried away from the Randolph by the tides. The Yarmouth pulled up to the two American ships, fired a warning shot, and demanded they identify themselves. The Randolph responded by raising the American colors and firing at the Yarmouth. One observer stated that the roar of their thunderous discharges pierced the night. It was a terrific engagement. The two ships were so close to each other that both sides lobbed hand grenades at each other. The Randolph exquisitely fired her cannons and caused a lot of damage to the Yarmouth, including destroying the rigging and the topmast. The Marines on board the Randolph fired their muskets at the Yarmouth, killing 5 and injuring 12. However, about 15 minutes after the battle started, Captain Biddle was severely wounded in the thigh. The ship's surgeon quickly made his way to Biddle. Because of the wound, Biddle wasn't able to stand, but he refused to leave his crew. The crew carried a chair to the quarterdeck, and the surgeon began to tend to Biddle's wound while he sat in his chair, motivating and directing his men. The British fired again, but this time, 
they hit the Randolph's powder storage. Whatever struck the powder caused it to ignite, and the Randolph exploded. Out of 305 sailors and marines, only four sailors survived. America lost over 300 sailors and marines, Captain Biddle, and the Randolph. It was devastating for the colonies, but the damage wouldn't stop there. Next week, we take a look at the loss of another significant ship, the Alfred. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we discuss the fate of the Alfred. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.